James Capella interconnects millions of assured data points across Jane's foundational intelligence with the ability to integrate and contextualize multiple sources, delivering the single source of truth. James Capella increases certainty and accelerates decision-making for everyone in your organization. Find out more at james.com forward slash capella. Welcome to the World of Intelligence, a podcast for you to discover the latest analysis of global military and security trends within the open source defense intelligence community. Now onto the episode with your host, Terry Pitar. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Jane's podcast. I'm Terry Pattar. I lead the Jane's Intelligence Unit, and I'm joined on this episode by Rob Dartnell, the Director and CEO of Security Alliance, an accredited and certified cyber threat intelligence company and uh, someone I've known for a while. And I wanted to invite Rob onto this episode to join us to talk about China's five-year plan, which we have covered in a recent episode in terms of defense and security and what their plans are around that. But in this episode, we wanted to talk specifically about their cyber uh, or the cyber aspects of China's five-year plan. So uh, Rob, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Derek. Good to be here. Thanks. Um, it would be great, maybe firstly, to get a bit of an introduction from you in terms of your background and, and how you got to where you are now. And, um, you know, within the within the context, perhaps, of in open source intelligence, what it is Site Security Alliance does and, and what, what is threat intelligence a little bit, a little a little bit on that, because I know sometimes people get a bit confused about what threat intelligence is in the cyber context. Yeah, sure. Um, so just starting back with me, uh, I was previously in the British Army as a military intelligence operator. Um, most of my work was predominantly around intelligence exploitation um, and also I specialised in threat finance and then over the years I kind of pivoted more away from conventional intelligence work and started to focus more on the, the cyber domain. Uh, I've been working in cyber threat intelligence for about six years and uh, a couple of years before that working on more cyber insider threat uh, as well. And in reality what I really do on a, a day-to-day basis is I either do intelligence-led red teaming assessments, so that's uh, generally understanding an organization uh, as a whole, also an understanding what adversary capability that there is, and then generally working with red teams to actually simulate those attacks against organizations to make sure that we're learning on you know, what defenses work, what don't, and what we need to, to do improve. And then the other half of my job when I'm in an operational role is I, I set up information and intelligence sharing initiatives within the cyber domain, usually at national or international level, just to make sure that we're all sharing insights around uh, adversaries so we can make sure that we're all adapting within hours to uh, to a new attack type rather than days, weeks or, or months. So, so that's mostly what I, I do. Um, that's mostly what Security Alliance does uh, as well. Mostly we map and track threat actors and campaigns and monitor our clients to see where they're weak so we can work out which uh, attack path uh, attackers are potentially going to to take um and also monitoring you know who's going to be targeted next which is part of this five-year plan right and Mm, trying to look through that and work out which bits are potentially interesting um and can we work out which industries or which technologies or which data sets might be a little bit more interesting than they were for the last five-year plan Interesting. So, I mean, let's let's just use that as a springboard to launch straight into it then. And um, 
what does China's five-year plan tell us about their intentions when it comes to developing cyber capabilities? And you know, this is—I mean, this, this is a really important topic, and it's one we hear a lot of people talking about. And uh, it, we do hear a lot of talk about state actors and the threats they pose when it comes to cyber. But I think you know the research that you've published—you put out a report on this just recently, and that was why you know I wanted to talk to you about it. And I think within that report, you, you know, Scary Alliance is probably one of the few people I've seen, or if anyone, I haven't seen actually anyone else put out some analysis on this. So yeah, it'd be great to get your thoughts and and um, some of that, uh, the, the key insights I think from that research that you did to figure out what it means um, for us as well and what we should be um, thinking about when we uh, we look at what cyber's into, uh, sorry, what China's cyber intentions are. Yeah, I think. In reality, there is a huge amount there. Let's not forget about the the sheer size and capacity that they have, not just about capability. Um, I know in a recent report they were described as a you know a tier two uh, operator, with the US being the only one as a, a tier one operator. I think in reality, if you actually look at their offensive capacity, uh, the sheer size of their teams, what they're going after, how often, the operational tempo that they have. I think in reality, looking at how we grade them, I would still put them as a, a tier one operator within the cyber domain, um, especially as most of what they do is offensive based. Um, I think in terms of progression from the previous five year plan, I wouldn't say that there is huge amounts of progression where they are progressing in terms of where their focus will be on a offensive cyber capability. Um, some of the industries that they're interested in, the data sets, the functions that they want to target are pretty much the same. Where some of the change is happening is possibly more at a geopolitical level or influenced from uh, geopolitics. So if we look at them wanting to move away from being reliant on Western financial functions and financial systems, you know, and pr producing their own payment functions, so creating their own SWIFT network, uh, their own exchanges, their own uh, fintechs and, and stuff like that. A lot of that is going to be their own innovation and they've proved that, um, but that is being driven by this geopolitical fallout. Um, so there, there will be, you know, espionage based operations against European and American, well, I suppose, global financial market infrastructures rather than financial services uh, generally. So that's just one example where it's potentially more geopolitical focus than it is, you know, based on a five year plan for, from five years ago or even the, the new five year plan. And I think in that context of, of sort of geopolitical elements, I guess what we've seen from China is that they've been they've become much more belligerent in their public sort of statements. And you know, we're hearing a lot of talk of wolf warrior diplomacy and them trying to be much more um, aggressive in many ways uh, towards other countries. And so um, did, did that sort of come out to you in the, in what they were talking about in terms of cyber and what they what their aims are um, within the five year plan in terms of actually trying to compete? You know, we, we, talk, we, we often talk about contested um, space and, and um, the competitions that are going on globally at the moment. But, you know, are they are they very bullish in their attitude towards that? Yeah, I'm not sure within a written document it comes across. Um, mm. I certainly think on a, a more physical um, presence there, then absolutely. I, I'm going to be interested to see what happens over the, the next six months. So there was the comprehensive investment agreement that they were negotiating with the European Union. That was pretty much put in the long grass last month. And some of the elements that people were concerned about there were things like um, visas for technical employees for Chinese nationals. 
Now, obviously, there's also laws within China that make Chinese nationals part of the intelligence collection capability for, for the state. Um, so there was a significant concern within uh, Europe around the insider threat within the cyber domain of having these technical nationals with visas operating within in Europe. Um, there's since then, we've also had some of this pushback from the likes of uh, other European nations pushing back against soft power influence for, from China. So again, more geopolitical influence rather than necessarily what was in the, the plan. There will have to be some form of reciprocal action from China um, for that, no doubt. And also if they're having less individuals within key institutions with collecting on their behalf within European entities, you know, that's only going to put more pressure on them to operate on a cyber domain rather than necessarily a physical domain. And also not forgetting, there is also the Belt and Road Initiative, of course, but there's also the digital Silk Road. It's not just the Silk Road, right? And that expands globally. That's not just a traditional Silk Road type route. When, you, when we talk about the digital Silk Road, does that overlap with, you know, some of the things you mentioned in the report, which is the interaction between um, cybersecurity and information operations you know is that part of that sphere for them in terms of influence that they want to push out more influence is, you know is that something that you see as being um, very much a part of their cyber strategy uh, as well or is it two are they two distinct things no uh, i see it all entirely integrated integration is everything full stop whether or not it's internal chinese um politics um with civil military type uh, elements or anything that, that they do. They're incredibly well joined up um, and they're doing much better at that. In terms of information operations, I think information dominance is key for, for any of their success, especially in developing nations. Um, they have to control the, the narrative there. I think in terms of counterparty information operations from Western entities around technology providers such as Huawei, um, yeah, I think in the, the West, you know, we're, we're generally happy with how everything went there in terms of making sure that some of those technology providers weren't part of our core critical national infrastructure. Um, well, it was a, that was a big topic of debate for a while, wasn't it? I mean, it, there was a lot of uncertainty about whether that that would happen or not. And, and mm. you know, was that something that you, you, you know, does your, has your perception changed of that issue at all through what you've seen in the five-year plan? Or is that still the same, that you would still perceive that as as perhaps like you said, it was a good decision maybe not to include those companies in core infrastructure. Mm, I think it was a key decision. I think it was a critical decision. I think, you know, you can only look at Hong Kong and see that, you know, why do you need to compromise 100 organisations when you can just compromise the core infrastructure for which that information is going over, right? Um, and I think in developing nations, we're absolutely concerned as well because there is the ability to exploit uh, them slightly more easily but also we have uh, telecommunications and data just flows all over the, the planet we don't always necessarily know where it's flowing and how it's flowing um, and also we outsource a tremendous amount within our supply chain and if you talk to any of the major institutions that especially for our clients who are usually very large financial institutions the supply chain, and you only have to look at the headlines, forget about anything, you know, the supply chain has been horrendous for every type of industry this year. There's been breaches left, right and centre, whether or not that's Russia or China. Um, and if we're outsourcing software development and call centres and data centres and our security operations to other developing nations, 
and that underlying infrastructure is provided by uh, entities that we consider as hostile, but also collecting on behalf of China, then, you know, what's the point in banning it from our, our own nations if, you know, we're losing the battle of information dominance in those nations? I guess, yeah, it's just displacing the risk, isn't it? Exactly. Mm, yeah. Well, what I liked in your report was that you, you went on to talk about the likely targets. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, you and I have talked a lot about, uh, just as an aside, I guess, about uh, intelligence and intelligence writing and analysis in the past. And likely is always one of the, our favourite words in intelligence work, I think. And uh, but so it's it, all of this is with caveats, I guess, in terms of you know um, what we what we uh, expect to see. But um, but yeah, I mean, from from what you put in the report, it'd be great to just get some some key points really from you in terms of who you think will be targeted, the how, the what, and the when, which you sort of break down really neatly in that report. Yeah. Um, so in terms of those likely industries, I think if we look past over the previous five years as well, we're not going to see any big changes. And we also have to separate industry from government as well. So let's forget about government and defence. I, I would say, of course, the defence sector will always have to be heavily targeted. I think one thing to potentially pick up a, as well from other commentary is this China wanting to innovate and create themselves. That's absolutely fine. And I concur with that. And I believe there are certain areas that they are not only incredibly good at, but probably leading the, the way with it as well. But, you know, if you were to look at it this way, that if you were a nation that was highly successful with cyber espionage, would you spend three to five years and 100 to 200 million dollars innovating and creating something yourself? when the solution is potentially already out there that you can get your hands on in a number of weeks at, you know, it's not very much cost because you've got a significant cyber espionage capability. So yes, they will always want to innovate um, and create Chinese solutions for the Chinese market, but it doesn't mean that they will be stepping away from cyber espionage operations. So I just kind of want to throw that kind of cautious point that's that's really interesting, yeah. Because you and you know, you also mentioned in the report that there is this overlap between cyber espionage and conventional espionage. Is there a bit of a risk that sometimes we do try and separate out cyber risks and threats and and look at them separately when actually we should be looking at them in a much more integrated way? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, more and more we're helping more and more organisations not just have their standalone cyber threat intelligence capability and their conventional intelligence capability separate and even fraud you know if you're talking financial institutions they're usually siloed inside organizations more and more thankfully people are creating their own internal intelligence units which are physical as well as cyber as well as fraud all combined because you need to do that especially with cyber cyber physical um, physical enabled cyber cyber attacks so things like rogue devices being implanted within uh, networks um, sometimes even just little things like accidentally clicking on links that you've already been told will be coming your way even little things like just telling um, an external attacker what laptop you're using, what security devices there are, um, what access to what folders and systems each type of organ um, individual or role has, um, how they would access a particular function. You know, all of that is incredibly valuable to uh, an external uh, attacker. So being able to fuse kind of that physical element within a, an organization as well as the cyber intelligence capability is really important and so yeah i guess that, that sort of needs, leads us neatly on to so you mentioned some of the the types of targets that they would be looking at so mm. 
you know, we mentioned that critical infrastructure, you talk about supply chains, um, which is something we've seen a lot of, as you, as you said. In terms of the how, though, and, and you sort of started to, I guess, talk about that a little bit, you know, is that something we're going to see change a lot over the next five years, or is that still going to be more or less, you know, the kind, same kind of methods that we've seen through the last five-year period? Yeah, so the how, how I think, is a great example for covid Obviously, you know, we talked about it a lot, so I won't dwell on it too much. But as we've moved to a working from home model, that's made us much more reliant on connectivity technologies. So things like VPNs into our offices. So there are, you know, I won't name the vendors on here. It's not particularly fair, but there's two or three vendors that are consistently targeted by Chinese actors over the past 12 months because there have been vulnerabilities in their technologies that they've been able to take advantage of. So they have swayed more to exploiting a vulnerability in a technology rather than relying on social engineering. And when I say social engineering, I really mean phishing and spear phishing, right? Um, I think as we move to a more connected community, uh, digital exploitation over exploitation of a human being's weaknesses, um, you know, we're going to have to become, they will become more dependent on that. But it also depends on the sector and the region, right? If you are, I'm thinking about this in terms of wanting to supply technologies and infrastructure. If you're able to provide the underlying core infrastructure and networking uh, to a particular nation, you know, you are then going to be able to exploit um, and get network access and direct access to data that way, rather than having to hack 50 to 100 organizations in that nation or the, the population. So that level of uh, targeting will, will likely increase as they increase their, you know, digital networking um, presence uh, across the developing world, I would have thought. That's really interesting. And I think, so, it, well, it, it creates a lot of risk for everybody because if you're any kind of organization, whether it's public sector, private sector, and you're buying software from a you know third party vendor, um, how much can you really do to dig into that or to do any kind of due diligence on that software to work out whether it's got any vulnerabilities you you we really are reliant i guess on the the creators of that, that those software tools and applications mm. to be secure for us aren't we we are but i think we have been for such a long time now um that we've come to realize that we can't be uh, and that we actually need to take on this responsibility as individual institutions and also as a collective as well. So we've done quite a bit of work the, this year actually with uh, major institutions in effectively expanding their intelligence surveillance capabilities from wider just against my own organization, you know, what's happening with me, consultancy X or bank Y, um, and what's going on with threat actors, but also going, okay, let's monitor my supply chain. Who's targeting my supply chain? How are they targeting my supply chain? What products are, and services are, are within my supply, within my organization that my supply chain has access to, or you know, threat actors can get access to by compromising my supply chain. Spending much more time, effort and money doing quality assurance on the actual products. And this is where the cyber threat piece comes in, right? It's the, there's a vulnerability in this particular technology. Um, Actually, it sits within this part of the network and, you know, you've got to have network access for it. It's quite complex. Don't worry about it. Or there's this vulnerability in this technology, which is sitting on your perimeter. It's very heavily targeted by this nation state. And by the way, this nation state has historically targeted either your organization or a peer type organization. So 
get that squared away in by you know close of play or in the next 48 hours um otherwise you know you look at china and the push for automation and artificial intelligence within cyber operations you know if they're continually scanning network perimeters across the entire globe you know it's only going to take them a matter of hours to identify a brand new vulnerability um, within the perimeter of an organization and not only identifying it but being able to exploit it automatically without the use of a human being doing the, the technical exploitation um, it just puts more and more pressure on us to know exactly what's going on with our software and our supply chain um, well i mean that's a really interesting sort of point to touch on in terms of that advancement in capability that you just mentioned and and the ability to go after many more targets faster globally mm. to to what extent does that become something that you would you would expect to see china relying on more and more versus some of the other things you mentioned earlier that you touched on which also you mentioned in your report as well which is that the aspects of the insider threat um or is it just a combination of those? I think it's a combination. I would say the insider threat um, can only be so big um, right. because of, you know, of course they can have um, Chinese national supporting operations. Um, evidently, you can also rely on conventional human type operations with coercion and, you know, the, mm -hmm. the normal MICE framework with, with getting somebody mm -hmm. to, to work for you. Um, in terms of relying on technologies, that is where you're going to see the, the growth. Now, a lot of people talk about machine learning and artificial intelligence when actually what they're doing is just deploying some really cool scripts uh, that are quite complicated um, and pretending it's AI and ML. In reality, with, with China, they, they are pushing quite heavily and investing very heavily on, on that. Um, in terms of autom automating the detection of things that they want to go after. That's already happened. We already know that's already happened. That's what they do on a, a daily basis. But it's the AI element, um, you know, knowing exactly what organization they do want to go into, don't want to go into, how far they should do when they hand off to the human operator, et cetera, et cetera. And so they will keep pushing hard on that and we will see more and more of them. Sure. So, so that's really interesting and i think for especially from within the context of the international kind of global competition we're seeing at the moment and that this much more competitive environment at the state level you know do, do you perceive that china is building uh a, a, well an advantage i guess are, are they building a capability in in that uh, way you described in terms of using ai etc perhaps faster than either we might anticipate or than uh, some of the, you know, the, than the US or Western countries might be doing themselves. Yeah, it's an interesting one. In terms of AI, I think in the short term, and I, when I say short term, I mean five years and even mm. 10 years when it when we're talking about AI, probably yeah. five years, mm. uh, there's only going to be so much that you can do with mm. AI in terms of cyber ops. I think what it will do, it will reduce kind of the, the mass amount of work, i.e. the rather than having to look at hundreds of thousands of targets all at the same time, most of the hard grunty work will be done by the AI. A lot of the actual exploitation inside networks over the next five years will still be mostly human led. Um, but I think somewhere between three and eight years, that's when you're going to start looking at AI predominantly doing significant amounts of the intrusion. Um, 
before we get to the you know the the really sensitive parts of the network where potentially that top secret document is or that payment function is or that ai is or you know that formula is and that's when you know humans with hands on keyboards will start completing the the, the final parts of the attack i would have thought God, but let's not say you know, this isn't just china Right. No, yeah, sure. And, and it, I guess that's part of the problem, isn't it? That capabilities developed some, in one place, potentially, you know, we, we've seen this in the past, right, with, with cyber um, and the fact that capabilities developed by one country or one actor, once they're out in the open, um, tend to be very easily copied or used by others. Is, mm. is, that, is there also a danger of that, do you think, with some of the capability that China might develop? Uh, 100%. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but also at the moment, I think it's it's also nations running the same race against each other in their own lanes, mm-hmm. um, rather than necessarily them all copying from each other. I think the there was some some of the US leaks from the NSA and the, the CIA. Uh, forgetting about the tools that were leaked, just the overall mentality, methodology, um, and approach to doing things. So the kind of the process kind of stuff behind it is sometimes even more valuable than the actual tool sets uh, that people use to conduct that, right? Mm -hmm. In terms of adopting malware from each other, you know, that is just something that happens all day, every day, Um, threat actor to threat actor. Um, we, We see it today. Uh, there's a new variant of another piece of, of ransomware that has been copied by another threat actor uh, or another organized crime group. So I'd be more concerned about how you do the things um, and go about it than necessarily the tools themselves. That's, yeah, I think that's really interesting and a really important point as well in terms of thinking about that process and that being the more important aspect of of what actually gets copied. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Um and, and, you know, we, we talked about how they might con- conduct some of these attacks and you've mentioned and touched upon already some of the things that they'd be looking for. Um, but the objectives really are around things like uh, intellectual property, um, finance, you know, you mentioned there the financial sort of sector and their interests there. Um, uh, is there any sort of set or, or do you think there's a, is there any focus from what you saw in the five year plan in terms of talking about t- talking directly about competition against other um countries in terms of military capability so cyber as as an aspect of military capability or is that something that's not directly mentioned i think in reality towards the the tail ends then yes it does um i'm not going to give you a page number but i can see it in in my head it makes reference to it um in terms of competition at a military level of course um there is and there is obviously only one major adversary that China really wants to compete against, uh, of course, in, in the US. Um, in terms of other areas, I think it's mostly, yes, IP is going to be an area. Financial intelligence is key for them as well, I think, when they're moving into M&A activity, um, acquiring organisations that can collect the sort of data that they need um, and give them access to without them necessarily having to conduct offensive cyber operations is Another one, uh, things that lend them credibility with a, within an industry and just soft power. I think soft power is going to be key for them. Um, and they've got to start winning this game pretty soon, I think. And I probably six months ago, I would have said that they were leading the way. But I think I wouldn't necessarily leading the way, but they certainly made significant progress. 
but I think when what we've seen post G7, some of the meetings in Europe, um, some of the elements around, for example, the comprehensive uh, agreement on investment being pushed back, I think you know there's definitely a contested battle space with Chinese soft power uh, at the moment. It's so interesting, and uh, in particular, what you know you've touched upon the geopolitical aspects of the cyber threat and how much it shapes the targeting and the the thinking and the, it, just the strategizing, I guess, for for the Chinese around how they go about using um, uh, cyber uh, threats that they innovate, whether they innovate them or whether they acquire them from elsewhere. But, um, you know, I think we've seen that a lot in the past. And I think it's really underrated in terms of actually what drives state actors to use this particular means of, of in either influencing, gathering information, getting an advantage, generally competing. Um, is that something that you would then look at as a way of trying to monitor? And, and you know, now, now that we know, OK, you've, you've analysed what direction they want to go in in the next five years, mm-hmm. um, you know, to what extent is the geopolitical aspect a really important part of that versus looking at perhaps any more technical information? Yeah, I think I would f- probably focus more on the quantitative element than the qualitative geopolitical uh, element as well. Although there are always going to be signs where in geopolitics, we're probably more monitoring what the CCP says about interaction with the rest of the world. You know, when they start talking, undermining quite heavily payment functions within the West or um, other types of technologies or services in the West. So they're starting to discredit. on the kind of the the world stage, then you know they're making progress in that particular area. Um, I think once, and this is possibly the bit that concerns me, is once we then start to see disruption and uh, degrade and potentially even denying type operations within the cyber domain from China against some of those key functions that they've been developing themselves or the key you know, assets, uh, that's when we know that you know, they're in a comfortable place to start telling the rest of the world that you don't need to rely on Western payment systems anymore or you know, Western services or technology providers or vendors or network providers because look, they're really unreliable. You know, they're always breaking. And uh, you know, when you're starting to get that on both a verbal level and also seeing network degradation within Europe, you know, payment systems all of a sudden not working properly, then that's when you can start measuring the success that uh, China has had. That's really interesting. Okay, yeah, that's something I guess people can definitely look out for. Um, and what, what does the future hold for for you, you or you think in terms of your your activities in terms of cyber threat um, intelligence? You know, what sort of things are you thinking about? In, whether it's China or more generally, the kind of challenges that that you face to keep on top of. The, the sort of changing landscape and um you know um is there is is it um something i think you know you need to really be specialized in looking at or is it something that as because it touches on so many different areas of people that other organizations um can also be sort of looking out for signs that they're seeing more um more activity against them um you know how, to, what is the balance there in terms of you know does it require the 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 real expertise that you would bring to it or or can sort of any organization really monitor their own um their own i guess interactions with china for any any signs of, of this type of activity yeah i mean i'd come back to the comments we were discussing earlier about a fusion capability of physical mm. cyber fraud and yeah. you know i 
I think you know, especially given my background, right? <laughs> 10, 10, 12 years ago, like, I, you know, I still hate computers if I'm entirely honest, but I never <laughs> in the cyber domain. Um, and I'm not doing too horrendous of a, a job at it. Um, I think you need to bring down individual specialists to work within that fusion capability to understand. I think um, most organizations, even big organizations, are really um, stretched with resource. So them creating dedicated intelligence capability that can concentrate on China, can concentrate on Russia, can concentrate on organized crime groups, can you know, Western groups, wherever you are in the world, then bringing that into a physical um, and then bringing that into a business context as well, right? This is the likely impact of them moving away from this particular industry um, or system that we provide. You know, in three years, they will likely conduct uh, disruption operations that will probably have a, you know, X billion dollar effect on our, our share price or income or revenues, you know, how many businesses have actually looked at saying, okay, well, China wants to develop this by themselves, but that's great. Well, how much is that going to reduce our market if they then start selling that solution into Africa or other parts of Asia and in the Indian subcontinent or South America, right? So what's the market influence of us losing our IP? Because I can't tell you how many times I've heard this and it deeply concerns me when I walk into big organizations that say, you know what, we're really concerned about getting targeted by ransomware. We're going to lose X amount of money. It's going to hit the knees. Um, and that's our board's main focus. Board's not really worried about the IP kind of stuff um, to China because nobody's really going to know about it. Chances are we might not even know about it. Um, <laughs> and it's such a short term view in terms of, but you're losing market dominance, right? Mm -hmm. um, why, why is that, you know, if you want to look at the long term strategy of how are you going to grow into other regions, have you considered what cyber uh, China's doing in the cyber domain, what they're taking, what they're developing themselves, and then what they want to use in terms of dominance um, in the regions of which you want to, to expand? But is the challenge there as well for those kinds of organizations that they might see some sort of attack happening or some sort of threat against them, but they might not necessarily be able to say it's coming from China. And so they might not be able to connect the dots in the sense of, um being able to think about well actually this is not just about uh, you know directly uh trying to it's not it's not about a short-term uh threat of say which a ransomware attack might be mm. it's a it's a longer term strategic plan that is designed to degrade our market share or our ability to dominate a market uh is that the challenge that they they, they might not necessarily know where the threat is coming from it is and it isn't so <sighs> I think partly I'm a big fan of attribution. So mm -hmm. there's a, a big discussion and always has been and always will be is, is attribution actually really important? Well, my preference is yes, and there, there's mm -hmm. other reasons for it. Um, one of those reasons being that it's for the same reason you're asking the question is to understand what the long-term influences and effects could be. When we actually look at direct attribution versus kind of category attribution, that's also important. So what I mean by that is you can look at all of the techniques that were used within an attack and also potentially the malware and the tools. Now, you may not be able to distinguish that from a couple of nation states, but what that does tell you is actually this has never been seen by organized crime or hacktivism or whatever is only ever been seen by the subset of nation states. 
So what that really means is actually generally at nation state level, they only have an intent of X, Y and Z. So maybe information dominance, information operations, um, espionage and whatnot. So you can still make decent enough assessment out of that, even if you can't pinpoint it directly to the individual unit within the PLA or the FSS or whatever it might be. That's really interesting. Um... And I think I'm, I'm conscious, Rob, that you know you've got a lot to a lot to take on, a lot to help your your customers with. So I don't want to take up much more of your time, but um, I wanted to just maybe round out this uh, discussion with an, an unrelated question, actually. And it's just because it's been there's been a lot about it in the news lately, in the sense of there's a, a huge shortage of people in the cybersecurity sector. Is that something you're seeing when you, when it comes to sort of cyber threat intelligence in particular? And because I know a lot of our audience are obviously in the military and, and probably thinking about careers afterwards. What advice yeah. would you have to people like yourself, maybe who don't come from a technical background about getting into that sector? Is, is there demand? Is the, is the demand as good as it appears to be judging by some of the news stories we hear? Yeah, the, the demand is most certainly there. Um, I think it was easier for me seven eight years ago um it was easy for me to really make a, a mark with what uh what i was doing as well because there was less people like me i suppose who had done that initial transition what i'd say to you, uh military folk is like we're all used to really getting our heads down and working incredibly hard when we disappear for nine months on operations or you know we're about to start focusing on a new line of operation or targeting deck or whatever it might be and we spend months and months reading in and we do long hours doing that to make sure that you know all of a sudden we switched from country desk x to country desk y and we we're expected to be a world leading sme within 24 hours right we're used to that level of pressure i know in reality, cyber is one of those elements where it's overly complicated because there are two sets of people. One, there's a lot of people in it that don't understand it and they make it incredibly complex because they don't understand it themselves. Um, and two, people want it to be complex so they can keep the keys to their kingdom. Um, on a technical nature, you're never going to get me breaching somebody's network. You're you know, not going to get me capturing a forensic Im image and going through it or reverse malware uh, running uh reverse engineering uh malware but mm -hmm. i've got enough of a technical grip over the past few years to really understand what an attack path looks like the techniques that people use why they use them and at the end of the day if you can communicate what actors are doing how they're doing it why they're doing it but most importantly what your assessment is in terms of business impact or organizational impact that is the key bit that is missing from technical expertise and cyber threat intelligence. So you guys within the military are fantastic at understanding the, the so what um, and being able to communicate that clearly. So it's going to be a scary, hard couple of years transitioning into it. But if you want to, the grass is most certainly green uh, within the, the cyber domain. Interesting. And I guess on the reverse, um, Militaries should really be doing more about cyber threat intelligence themselves, shouldn't they? And um, is that a capability you see them developing or yeah, is. is that somewhere that where they still are sort of lacking uh, impetus? Yeah, you know, I, I obviously have massive bias in terms of the organisations that I look at and I can see great strides, um, particularly within European militaries and armies um, and obviously, you know, more Western generally. 
the rest of the world, I'm probably going to have to rely on your expertise, Terry. <laughs> but uh, but I really do. I'm starting to see more CVs from um, the the police and other law enforcement and the military with some cyber threat intelligence uh, experience where they've been enrolled for several years, and uh, you know it's less strategic stuff and also more technical now, which is really really great to see so steps have been made evidently more steps need to be made um but you know as we most military not most militaries but significant number of militaries are also transitioning into a more civil military so you know reservist type forces you know that's going to be incredibly helpful there as well i believe thanks rob it's been really great talking to you and there's a lot that I think people could take away from this episode. You know, for me, definitely thinking about China's uh, capabilities and all the the things that they're trying to do, and and actually the the integration of it all. You know, it it all comes together. There's no, you know, you can't separate out one aspect of what they're doing. It just seems to be um, a very all-encompassing way of competing. Um, let's say, and um, I think we'll we'll hear a lot more about this, and um, no doubt we'll look to you for some of your insights and to sit, hear from you again about what you're seeing. Uh, in terms of how some of these capabilities are developing. Thank you for having me. Great stuff. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for joining us this week on The World of Intelligence. Make sure to visit our website, janes.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, so you'll never miss an episode.